Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, will deliver a message about finding freedom through Jesus Christ. You can follow along with the message in John 8, 12 through 59. You can also find our weekly message outline and other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood app. Can you detect the Spirit of the Lord? You know, that's a, that's a fundamental need for Christians to be able to discern the Spirit's presence and the Spirit's leading for all change that's eternal is by the Spirit, not by human effort, not by self-discipline, but by the Spirit of God. So we continue our series, The Life of Jesus. Today's message I'm calling freedom, and it's from reading 111. But reading 111 is a long reading because this book seeks to put together, if, if there's a long conversation, then it'll be usually in one reading. And that's the case to, in today's message. And so I'm only dealing with a section called Truth and Freedom on 134 is where I'll start. But take out your message guide. And there's a theme verse that I pulled out of the passage, familiar verse, you will know the truth and what? Are you free? Now be honest with this assessment, are you free? I don't think everybody should be nodding their heads. Are you, think about this. Reflect on it seriously. Are you free? The word free, the Greek background, is eleutheros, and you don't need to ever need to write those down, but, but sometimes it gives some richness to the word. Because sometimes we have, we have an adaptation of a Greek word in English that, that by definition limits it, narrows the meaning. But in the origin, the word free meant unrestrained, exempt from obligation or liability, not controlled by someone like a slave or something. That could be something external. It could be something internal. So freedom is uncontrolled externally, internally by another person, by something. So I want to see some hands. How many of you want to be free? We replaced the light so we can go all the way to, I can see all the way to the back wall now. So I don't want any smooching up there. (laughs) Or punching. (laughs) But what do you want to be free from? You see, we could all say, oh yeah, I want to be free. No, no, you got to get specific. What do you want, what do you need to be free from. Now, in the New Testament, the primary sense of freedom, even though the Pharisees and even the Jews wanted freedom from Rome, but but the teaching of Christ and the intent of the New Testament isn't ever freedom from Rome. It's freedom from bondage. It's freedom from oppression, but from who? From sin. So we'll see in this passage, I'm just using a few verses, 
how to find true freedom. First, we find true freedom by believing in Jesus. And I'm starting, as I said, on 134 under the heading Truth and Freedom, but at verse 30, and this is John 8, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. What do you think happened? Say it again. Many believed in him. What's it mean to be believe in him? See, we, we jump to the assumption it means salvation, don't we? It's not what it means here. This verse refers to people who agreed with what Jesus was saying, but weren't surrendering their lives to him. These same people were not converts, they were not true followers of Jesus. And yet it said they believed, and yet we jump on that word and we say, ah, they're Christians. Mm -mm. The Bible warns us that not all forms of faith, expressions of faith, are saving faith. In this same conversation, Jesus speaking to these people, but drop down to verse 37. I know you are descendants of Abraham... But you are trying to kill me because my word is not welcome among you. Sound like Christians? What do you think, Daniel? Sound like Christians? Flip over to the top of the next page. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. Drop to 44. You can read all this on your own time, but I'm just picking out some highlights. You are of your father, the devil. Sound like Christians? And yet it said they believed, didn't it? And you want to carry out your father's desires. And then the the last verse in that section, 47. The one who is from God listens to God's words. And this is why you don't listen. Because you are not from God. See, there's a form of belief There is the acceptance of facts about Jesus, even Jesus' identity, perhaps even his life and mission that doesn't yield salvation. Now, if that's where you are, you are in the most possibly dangerous state because you believe enough to think you are saved, not enough to actually be saved. You say, well, well, I'm confused. Well, the Bible's full of these examples. I I taught a few weeks ago, remember the parable of the sower? Also called the parable of the souls and there are other names. Reading 66 is where it's presented. Reading 68 is where I taught the explanation. But here's a verse from that passage. Well, let me say this. Let me ask you this first. In In that parable of just a few weeks ago, how many seeds were sown? Stuart? Four. That's right, I quieted everybody out, so it put you right on the spot. Four seeds were sown. How many sprouted? Somebody over here had it. Three sprouted. One was snatched by birds, symbolizing Satan. Three sprouted. But what did those 
three symbolize. Here's one. And the seed on the rock are those who, when they hear, welcome the word with joy. And having no root, these believe for a while and depart in a time of testing. In that parable, four seeds were sown, three seeds sprouted. How many symbolized Christian faith? One. But three sprouted. See, we we have called human response salvation. Human response can't yield salvation. The Spirit of God yields salvation. Remember the chorus? The Spirit is here so miracles can happen. Mere acceptance of the facts of the gospel does not equal saving faith. Because in James chapter 2, who believes that that's not Christian? The demons believe that. Because look at this. The identity of Jesus, the reality of God, those are facts. They're indisputable facts. So the fact that you're saying, I believe this is true, that's not salvific. That's a statement of the obvious. Genuine faith manifests itself in changed life. And also in James 2, it tells us that it, a changed life produces what? Good works, good deeds. In other words, are you saved with no evidence? No. Faith without works is dead. In other words, faith never occurred. Regeneration never occurred. James 2, 17 and 18. And there will also, because it's a relationship beginning, there will be an enduring love for Jesus Christ. Saving faith consists of three elements. Knowledge. Knowledge is the intellectual component of faith. And it involves understanding the basic biblical facts regarding salvation. Now, most of us call knowledge salvation, don't we? It's not. It's the first step. There is some intellectual, some information, some facts that we accept. There's also then the the next step is acceptance or assent. Which means the person... Not only do they know the facts, but they confidently affirm those facts are true. So you know what they are. You declare that they're true. But salvation comes in the third step, trust. And this is when you act on them personally by depending, relying clinging even desperately on Jesus Christ as your only hope for salvation. You hear what I mean? There's some desperation in it, isn't there? What other alternative do you have to enter heaven if what God's told you in the scripture is not true? You have none. So you're totally exposed, vulnerable. Hebrews 11.1 one. Says it says the same thing. Faith is the confidence. Okay, that's the, that's the second step of what we hope for will actually happen. 
But then the third, we see the trust part. It gives us assurance about the things we can't see. So we have this, this acceptance. We have this assent. But we also have this trust. I'm invested in this truth. In saving faith, the entire person is involved. The intellect is the knowledge. The emotions, acceptance. And the will, trust. Embraces Jesus Christ for who he is, which is not Savior than Lord. You know, we, this, this is this false teaching. Christ can be Savior, and then later on, you'll make him Lord. Mm-mm. He is Lord. It's his identity. So here's the question. Have you believed in Jesus? And here's the evidentiary question. Has it changed your life? We also find true freedom by continuing in the word. We're back to verse 31 on 134. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, who had believed him, if you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. In other words, if you don't, you aren't. Those whose faith is real... It, it's, 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 it's saving trust, it's dependence, will continue. And the Greek word behind continue is meno, and it means to stay, abide, dwell, endure, be present, remain. And you'll be present, you'll remain, you'll stay, you'll dwell, you'll continue, you'll, you'll endure, not only in faith, but also in obedience to God's word, to Christ's word. A disciple, he says, you'll be my disciples, a Greek word, methetes, refers to a learner or a pupil. That's what disciple means. And the the pupil in the Hebraic understanding, the, the, the learner, the pupil had a spiritual teacher and he followed after that teacher and he was always responding to whatever the teacher imparted to him. That's the picture of Christianity. We're pursuing Christ for whatever he gives us, we're committed to implement. This bit, if I say, how do you know you're Christian? I prayed a prayer at seven. No, no. There ought to be evidence today. Folks, we got to quit justifying salvation by something we did as children or teenagers. We're talking about a relationship that's ongoing, that's ongoing. Don, how would Lisa like it if you said, well, you know, I told her when we married, how many years ago? 17 years ago, that I would always love her. So why do I have to say it again? Why do I even have to do it? I told her then, wasn't that enough? I I made a decision, we had a proclamation right then. You said, that's not a marriage, it's not a relationship, you see. Relationships are ongoing. They actually build in intimacy, in depth. Discipleship is not a sudden enthusiasm that flares up quickly but dies out. Now, human emotion can do that. And some of you have asked, you know, why don't you do a more traditional kind of um, invitation? Here's why. 
Now, I may, not, I may lack the skill to do this, but let's assume I had the skill. I could convince you humanly to respond, moving you emotionally, present, presenting some fear, you know, what's the future, heaven, hell. I might can get you to respond to me, walk an aisle, even be baptized. But I'm dealing with you and I'm addressing the humanity of you. And it yields nothing supernaturally. But if the Holy Spirit is doing something in you, all we have to do is receive you and give you the chance to say it. And this afternoon, do you know that nothing happens in the water of baptism? I may hold you under, but... But it's all symbolic of something that's already happened. And you say, but we're supposed to profess profess our faith before men. Jesus said that unless you confess me before men, I'll not confess you before our Father. Yes, we confess our faith that we've been born again in baptism. And baptism is an invitation to all to say, you can expect me and I hope you'll help me live in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we do at baptism. I urge you all to come, four o'clock. It's a celebration time. Because discipleship means remaining with Jesus and his word. And a true Christian is a disciple who continues in the teaching of Jesus in the Bible. You know, and sometimes I'll say, somebody say, well, I really did this as a child, and I know I'm a Christian. I'll say, well, I, you, don't, you don't have to take that up with me. But if there's no evidence today, and if you're living disobediently, and you're rejecting what God's Word says, you don't have any basis for confidence that, you're, that you know Jesus Christ. Is that fair? Look at this verse, John 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The one who has my commands and keep them is the one who loves me. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. But the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. You can also see Matthew 12, 50. Truly accepting Jesus as Savior is a relational experience, and it includes obeying him as Lord, not out of fear or obligation, but out of love. When you love someone and you enter relationship with them, things change, don't they? You made any changes because of her? She didn't need as many as you did. But because of love, there's a willingness to change. If any of you are in a relationship with someone who is resistant to change and says, I won't change, this is who I am, that's not love. That's not love. Love says, how can I become more intimate with you? How can I please you with my words and actions in life? That's love.
And it's not only in marriage, it's in a relationship with Christ. A relationship with Jesus conforms our desires to his. Have you noticed that? Some of you that have been married a while, we've been married 30 years, you just sort of learn to get along, don't you? You just conform yourself to each other. It isn't something that you decide one day and you write a list to do. It, it's just a metamorphosis that's motivated by love and, and it changes you. And it's just simple, just to restate it, evidence that a person is born again and has entered relationship with Jesus is obedience to his word. John eight fifty one. Now, many of us, and particularly in American culture, many of us call ourselves Christians. I mean, 65% of Americans uh, consider themselves Christians. But many of us have manufactured our own faith by including aspects of what Jesus has said that we'll accept, but then excluding or rejecting what he said that we don't agree with and don't intend to obey. The problem with that approach is that then your faith is based on your preferences. I feel like that too. And it puts you in control of the relationship. But, but your gospel is your own, not God's. And God doesn't keep promises he didn't make. So are you relying on a gospel that you crafted to secure your salvation? You're at great risk if that's where you are. We find true freedom also by knowing the truth. John 8, 32, just the first part of this. You will know the truth. Believing in Jesus, continuing to obey his word, results in knowing truth. See, here's the problem. Knowing truth isn't an intellectual exercise. It's a supernatural experience with a spiritual person. We made discipleship watching videos. That's cognitive. Christianity, discipleship, is relational. It's not, it's not primarily informational. John 14, 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't point the way. He didn't say, follow these steps. He said what? He's the way. And no one comes to the Father except if he does the things I'm about to tell him. Isn't that what it says? Uh-uh. It says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Relational, not informational. 
The truth comes not only from knowing the revelation of Scripture, but, but let me say this. What happens here on Sunday morning, because I'm saying it doesn't mean it's spiritual. I've prepared, I've studied, but my preparation isn't going to change your life. Y'all might not come back next week. But here's what happens. When you show up and I present God's word and we worship him and we honor his name, his spirit inhabits praise. Then he takes sometimes the words I'm saying, sometimes I don't have anything to do with what he's saying to you. And you hear the message spiritually. And not only do you have it, it has you. That's revelation. And that's why we don't do video churches because God's spirit works when God's people are collected. What's put on a screen is informational. Maybe God's spirit works, maybe not. I mean, I think the experience in here is different than the experience in the building on television. The truth comes not only from knowing the revelation of Scripture concerning Christ. It comes from being taught by the Holy Spirit. Many of you stopped me at, you know, Bilo or wherever. Um, that's right. That's why I heard Lowe's or something. I can go to Lowe's and eat those sausage dogs and potato chips and all that stuff. Leanne doesn't go for all that, so I have to sneak away to Lowe's. And I don't even know where I was, but. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're taught, you're taught by the spirit of truth. So what I'm saying, when I'm in a store or a way like that, people very often say to me, you know, what you said blessed me, changed my life, whatever. It's rare that it's even anything I even said. Because there's a dynamic that's happening that the Spirit of God knows you, knows God, is speaking your needs to God and His response back to you. Some of it's happening while I'm talking. But it may not even be what I'm saying. Look at this verse, 1 John 2, 27. But you have received the Holy Spirit... And he lives within you. So you don't need anyone to teach you what is true. For the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know. And what he teaches is true. It is not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in relationship with Jesus Christ. That's discipleship. It doesn't sound like going to a class, does it? It's a life in relationship with Jesus Christ. Scripture is, and God gives us the revealed truth of Scripture. It is true. But it becomes, it, it, it transformative when the Holy Spirit enlivens what's printed truth and it becomes experiential truth. Does this sound confusing? Or is it plain? Is it clear to y'all up there? Is this plain? 
I'm not trying to be all mysterious and metaphysical. I'm trying to, I'm trying to really dial down what happens because you know what? We have a insipid American church and I've been puzzling over and fasting and praying over why is there no power, no strength, no conviction? It's because there's awful not much salvation, but there's a lot of information. And we don't want to go through this world and go to church and not be born again and just have some information. You see what I'm saying? But God gives us the Scripture. And in it, Jesus is who is truth incarnate. Incarnate means in body, in flesh. Jesus is revealed. But as I read this, I'm reading it cognitively. But only the Spirit can make it truth that not only do I have, it has me. And so the Holy Spirit imparts truth to believers. John 17, 17. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Okay, is he telling, this is the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying. Is Jesus telling the disciples, y'all need to read the Bible and be more holy. Is he saying that? Who's he talking to? Now see, God's going to send lightning unless y'all answer. That's already a warning. He's talking to his father. Because you know what? You can't make yourself holy. God's spirit sanctifies you. God's spirit makes you holy. Holy isn't behaving better. Holy is being wholly different, set apart, unlike the others. And you can't even do that to yourself. God, by his spirit, does that to you. And that's why he's asking God, sanctify all these disciples by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. But again, it's not from you just studying harder. It's from the Spirit of God imparting truth to you experientially. You understand the difference? Completely different. This truth doesn't provide information. It produces transformation. And that's Romans 12 too. Don't conform to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you know what? When your mind is renewed, that passage then says, you'll know the holy, pleasing, and perfect will of God. See, we think, oh, well, I got to ask God this and God gives me an answer. And it's like this proposition. God, what about this? And what about that? God, I want, you know. But it's more, you're just changed. You know what I'm saying? Jane, how long have y'all been married? 46 years. Do you have to ask him many questions about what he wants? Why? Why? You know him. The, the, the words are fewer because you know intimately the person. It's the same with God. Exactly the same. Now, when we, we do run up against a situation we're not sure of, the Bible is given as a guide for life. And the Bible does reveal what's wrong. It exposes errors in our thinking. It exposes sin in our lives. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a passage about the Scripture. All, spirit, all Scripture is inspired by God. 
And it's useful to teach what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. But I didn't say it transforms us, did I? It's correct. We follow it. You've got a decision to make. Consult the word. But when God's spirit reveals his word, it changes you. Does God's word guide your life? Does it inform your decisions? Does it direct your behavior? True freedom occurs only by being made free. The latter part of 32. And the truth will set you free. See, the reality of believing in Jesus, obeying his word, knowing his truth brings freedom. Freedom doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, without any negative repercussions. You know, I hear that where people just assume they're going to live in disobedience or immorality or whatever, and then they just know God will forgive them. That is a dangerous place to be because it says I don't have any love for the one that I'm asking to forgive. Freedom doesn't mean you do what you want, when you want, how you want, and nothing negative happens. That's not freedom. That's slavery. See, if you are controlled by your own desires and impulses, you're not free. What do we call that? Being controlled by your desires and impulses. A hint, Thursday night. That's addiction. You understand that? You can be addicted to your own self. If you're seeking to have, to, 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 to gather peace or contentment or, or inner satisfaction by submitting to your desires and impulses, you're an addict of yourself. See, we label addiction on drugs and alcohol, but no, there's a wide range. If I have to buy this, if I have to have this, if I have to drive this, if I must live in this neighborhood, that's as much an addiction as drugs and alcohol. If that place that's, that's reserved in us that only God can fill, but he hasn't filled it, and we're cramming stuff we can grab from this world... That's addictive living. But the freedom that Jesus offers is freedom to do what's right, freedom to do what's best, freedom to do what God wants for you, freedom from the incapacitating effects of sin. That's freedom. And you know what? There is no other place. You're a slave of God and righteousness or you're a slave of sin and Satan. There is nowhere else to stand. Look at Romans 6. So if you're calling the shots, guess, guess which side you're on. True freedom does not facilitate me fulfilling all of my selfish wishes and wants. 
True freedom is the ability to deny myself and my clamoring consumption. True freedom is the ability to deny myself, to obey God, and to serve others. You want to know who's free? The people that obey God and the people that serve others. Now, the Jews resented Jesus saying this. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Look what, he, look what they said in verse 33. We're descendants of Abraham, they answered him, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Now, just as a point of historical truth, the Jews had been enslaved by Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then the Medes and Persians, then the Greeks, then the Syrians, and finally the Romans. We've never been slaved by anyone. Have you noticed that pride always resists truth? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody that loves you tries to say, hey, you're wrong in this. Oh, I'm not. Pride always resists truth. They say, well, maybe they were just meant they had spirit, spiritual freedom nationally, perhaps. But they were still blind to the truth. The freedom that Jesus referred to cannot come from racial or religious identity. Which did not and could not remove their sin, which is what separated them from God. Verse 34. Jesus responded, I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. In this passage, it's, it's talking about a, a practice of sin, of the presence of the sin nature. But it includes even the individual sins. See, to be enslaved is to be totally under the control of another and being unable to free oneself. These Jews thought they were right with God by keeping the law. And the religious leaders thought they kept the law beautifully. Including all the extra traditions and all the extra rules and regulations. But in reality, they were enslaved by the law. They weren't freed by the law. The law is given to make sin utterly sinful. The law exposed sin. You see what I'm saying? It didn't free them from sin. And no one was ever made right by obeying the law. And I mean the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. Some of us think that Old Testament people live by the law. No one's ever lived by the law. No one's ever been saved by the law. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Because no one could keep it perfectly. Which is what God would require if you were qualifying for the kingdom of God by obedience. Even if a person obeyed it outwardly, didn't commit murder, didn't commit adultery, you know the Sermon on the Mount, there was still the matter of wrong motivations and attitudes, which may have been unseen by other people, but were fully emblazed 
and aware by God. See, we only see the surface, don't we? And let's just just be honest. We're all far worse than we display. Is that true? Including me. That's right. You say, well, you're not that good anyway. Yeah, but I'm a whole lot worse than you think. But even though we're not fully known by each other, we're fully known by God. You know, we might have our actions, our behavior under pretty good control, right? But what about those attitudes? What about that anger? What about that fear? What about that envy? What about that resentment? What about all of those things? What about not adultery, but what about the lust? Not the murder, but what about the anger? That's what he's talking about. And like these Jews, we can't completely eliminate the presence of sin in our lives. So are we hopeless? We're not hopeless. But here's why. Not based on ourselves where we are. And he continued in verse 35. A slave does not remain in the household forever. But a son does remain forever. See, these Jews, even though they were descendants of Abraham and therefore part of God's chosen nation, they were really like slaves because, see, they were under the burden and the obligation of the law. They were controlled by the law even though they didn't obey it perfectly. They were slaves. They were not free. They didn't have a right to live in the household. But Jesus did. They were in danger of forfeiting what they'd received. I mean, Paul said, well, is there there no benefit in being Jewish? And Paul said, no, there's benefits in every way. For it's to the Jews that Jesus came. It's to the Jews the law was given. It was to... But the answer is still Christ. The son has a permanent right to live in the household. The slave does not. And the son rules over the household, Hebrews 3, 6. So see, Jesus has the authority to release those who rely on him from bondage to sin. He has the ability to remove the responsibility we have for the sins we've committed because of who he is. And he frees us relationally. Not by making us behave better, that's the result. He makes us the sons and the daughters of God. You think that'll call you to a different way of living? I am a child of the king. You know what? That's a whole lot more motivating than thinking somebody might see me do something wrong. And then he says... If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus released us from the punishment for sin. But he also released us from the control of sin. You don't have to obey sin. You have the Spirit of God. You've been set free. And that spirit is the seal that you belong to God. Read Romans 6. You don't have to be a slave of any addiction or any behavior. 
He freed us from the penalty. He took our penalty on himself. And then he enables us to, by his power, to refuse temptation, to reject sin, so that even sin's presence is removed from our lives. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Do you have freedom? It's not because you're do, you following self-discipline. It's because the Spirit resides in you. Jesus adopts us into the household. He moves us from slavery to sonship and daughtership. Have you been set free from the control of sin in your life? Do you know that you're a son or daughter of God? Then enjoy that freedom. We celebrate baptism today. I urge you to come. Counselors will be here at the front. As soon as I pray, you say, well, you know what? I'm thoroughly confused by what he said. They'll be happy to talk with you. They'll be happy to pray for you. If you're suffering, struggling physically, they'll be glad to anoint you with oil and pray. We do see healing, not in every case, but we do at times. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Set us free by your Son, who is the way and the truth and the life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed day.